What about the eggs? Kang asked. What have eggs got to do with treasure? Unless, of course, you're on short rations. The draconians were themselves on short rations. The only food they had left was what they had brought back from the camp of the Dark Knights, and that wasn't going to last long with two hundred mouths to feed. I don't know. Unless they're not eggs at all. Maybe they're... The Boz sentry knocked on the tent post. Yes. Kang eased his leg into a slightly more comfortable position. What is it? Something I think you should see, sir. Very well. Kang motioned to Slith, who grabbed up the map, folded it, and replaced it in his belt. The Boz entered. In his hand, he held a short-statured, squirming, scruffy figure who looked vaguely familiar. Eh? Kang said in astonishment. What's this? A dwarf, sir, said the Boz. I can see that, Kang returned irritably. I mean, what's he doing here? He stared hard at the dwarf. He'd seen that face with that wretched growth of beard somewhere before. He glanced at Slith, who was regarding the dwarf with narrow-eyed interest. He came walking through the picket lines as cool as a white dragon's breath, sir, the Boz explained. The boys nabbed him and were about to skewer him, figuring him for a spy, when he flashes a medallion and says he's got to talk to the commander quick. What medallion? Kang was suspicious. He had no doubt at all that the dwarf was a spy. The Boz dropped the dwarf to the tent floor, cuffed him on the back of the head. Show that medallion to the commander. The dwarf opened a grubby palm and held out his hand. As he did so, Kang recognized him. You, he roared. You're the bastard who knifed me. The Boz drew his own knife. Grabbing the dwarf by the hair, the draconian jerked his head back, ready to slit his throat at the commander's order. Kang might have given that order, but Slith halted him. The Sivak was bent over the dwarf's hand, peering at the object. I think you should take a look at this, sir. Reluctantly, Kang swung his leg down from his chair, heaved himself painfully to his feet, and hobbled over to see what the dwarf was holding. All this time the dwarf had not spoken a word. I'll be a hobgoblin, Kang said, startled. It's my holy symbol. The one... the one that was stolen from me. He glowered at the dwarf, switched to speaking common. You stole this from me. Thief! What are you doing back here with it? The dwarf dropped to his knees and raised his hands in a supplicating manner. Oh, wise and most glorious leader, I admit freely that I stole this, but I didn't know I was stealing from you. Not that it matters, the dwarf bowed his head. I admit that my actions were wrong, though the same might be said of others who steal things, books especially, that don't belong to them. Kang snarled. The dwarf gulped and continued on. I am happy to return this to you, honored sir, very happy. The dwarf mopped his perspiring face with the sleeve of his tunic. I ask only one thing in return. He clasped his hands together. Take your queen's curse off me, please. What about pleading for your miserable life, Kang demanded, voice grating. The dwarf considered this, finally shook his head. No, sir, if you don't take the curse off me, my life will be worth nothing anyway. If you'd just remove the curse, I'd be grateful, very grateful. And I'm truly sorry I stabbed you, sir. 
the heat of the moment, battle rage. I'm sure you can understand. Kang snatched back his holy symbol. His hand closed over it. A feeling of relief flooded through him, a blessed warmth that eased the pain on his wound. Kang reached out his hand, took the boss's knife. Thank you, soldier, but I'll gut this one myself. Ah, uh, sir, a word with you, Slith coughed in a meaningful manner, jerked his head toward the back of the tent. Very well, Kang muttered, still glaring at the dwarf. He and Slith withdrew to the shadows. Sir, that's the dwarf from last night, the dwarf who had the book. He's also the dwarf who stuck a knife in me and stole my holy symbol, Kang growled. He paused, then said, What book? Last night's events were a bit foggy. The book I handed you, sir, the book with the leather cover. You used it as a bandage. That's where the map was, inside that book. And this was the dwarf in the house with the book. And that's the reason he stabbed you, sir. The book, said Kang, remembering. By our queen, you're right. What of it? It's just a book. Sir, he wanted that book back badly enough to run after you, a draconian three times his size, and stab you from behind. You've got a point, Kang admitted. And look at the way his beady eyes are darting around. He's searching for something, sir. What else could it be but the map? He must figure we have it. Do you know what I think, sir? I'm getting there, Kang said. The book tells what's in that treasure room. He knows. Kang regarded the dwarf thoughtfully. He's a clever little bastard. Bad as they come, too. No dwarf with a clean conscience could even touch our queen's medallion, and he's been carrying it around like some bloody heirloom. From the looks of him, though, I'd say he'll die sooner than tell us anything about the treasure. That's just it, Slith said, growing more excited. The curse, sir. He spills what he knows about the treasure, and you remove the curse. What curse? Kang was puzzled. Nobody put a curse on him, though I wish I'd thought of it. It doesn't matter, sir. He thinks there's a curse on him. Ah, Kang said. Perhaps you're right. He and Slith returned to the front of the tent. The dwarf was watching them askance. That will be all, Kang told the Boz, who saluted and left the tent. Now then... Kang fixed his reptile eye on the dwarf. What's this about a curse? You know, said the dwarf sullenly. You cast it on me. Suddenly he burst out. First it's the war, then it's Kender and Pax Tharkas, then dark knights grabbing people off the road, then draconians in my living room, and last but not least, Morthane under my window. Take it off me, the dwarf said through clenched teeth, or just kill me right here and now. All the time he talked, his eyes were searching every part of the tent and all its contents. This what you're looking for? Slith pulled out the folded map, laid it on the table. The dwarf barely gave the square bit of parchment a glance. He shrugged. No, I'm not looking for anything. He's good, this one, Kang muttered to himself. He had seen deep down in the dwarf's dark eyes a glimmer of fire when the map appeared. I'll make you a deal, Kang said. 
Returning to his chair, he sank into it, propped up his wounded leg on the footstool. I'll remove the curse if you make it worth my while. We happen to find this map. It looks to us to be some sort of treasure map, but the writing is all in Dwarven, which we can't read. Give it to me, said the dwarf, the fire burning deep within. I'll read it for you. Yes, I'll bet you would. And refresh your memory of it at the same time. Kang placed his clawed hand over the map. There must be something on that map that's worth the price of a curse removal. What is it? The dwarf pursed his lips, a move that sucked in his cheeks and pulled the rest of his face into a point. He was not an attractive dwarf to begin with, and this did nothing to improve his features. He bit his lip. Kang held up the holy symbol. Reaching out, he plucked open the dwarf's pocket. Perhaps you'd like this back. All right, the dwarf gasped, shuddered. Get rid of it. I'll tell you one thing. The word seemed wrenched from him. You've looked at the map? Yes. You know it's a map of Thorbarden? Oh, yes, said Kang and Slith. They exchanged glances. They'd neither of them had a clue about that. Well, the dwarf drew in a deep breath. His gaze went to the holy symbol one more time. His shoulders sagged in defeat. The rest of the words came out in a rush. On that map you saw some markings that looked like eggs? Well, they are eggs. Dragon eggs. From Naraka, back during the War of the Lance. Did I say dragon eggs? Make that draconian eggs. Like you, gentlemen, only they're not gentlemen, if you get my meaning. They didn't. Kang and Slith looked blank. The dwarf was exasperated. Look, do I have to spell it in words of one syllable for you guys? What's the opposite of gentlemen? Ladies. Right. Now you're catching on. There's ladies in those eggs, my friends. Boy, girl, boy, girl. The patter of little clawed feet. Female draconians. The dwarf stepped back, gave a flourish, and folded his arms across his chest, like a second-rate illusionist who had just produced a coin from up his nose. Kang and Slith sat perfectly still, staring at the dwarf. His news knocked the breath from their bodies as surely as if he'd struck them in the solar plexus with a limb from a valenwood. Females, Kang whispered. Female draconians. That's not possible. Yes, it is. It's all in the book. The dark clerics and the black-robed wizards made females so that they could perpetuate your race. But then the high muckety-mucks decided that they weren't all that sure they wanted your race perpetuated. And so they left the final spell undone. But we were in Naraka, Slith said, voice harsh. We would have found them. Not so, said the dwarf craftily, because by that time the Dewar had stolen them and taken them back to Thorbardin. They were going to sell them, but before they could, the thieves had a bit of a falling out over how to split the treasure, with the result that it was heads that got split, not the treasure. You're saying the eggs are still there? Kang's voice failed him before he came to the end of his sentence, but the dwarf understood. It's a good possibility, he shrugged. Mind you, I can't guarantee anything. Well, how about it? That valuable enough for you? Yeah, sure. Kang felt dazed. 
He waved his hand over the dwarf's head three times, said something in draconian. He was never quite sure what, but it appeared to satisfy the dwarf. He straightened his shoulders, shook back his hair. Right, I feel like a new man. He cast a wistful glance at the folded map. I don't suppose. One little peek. Slith snarled and bared his fangs. The dwarf nodded. Got you. See you around. He winked, and with that ducked out of the tent. Sir, the boss thrust his head inside. Do you want... Let him go, Kang said, still dazed. Escort him through the picket lines. Make certain nothing happens to him. Yes, sir. The boss was dubious, but he knew better than to question his commander's orders. Kang heard the dwarf's heavy-booted footsteps recede into the distance. What do you think? Kang asked Slith. The Sivak came to his senses with a start. Hastily, hands shaking, he carefully unfolded the map. The two bent over it, gazed at it intently. It could be, sir, Slith said, excited. It certainly could be. Those sketches, look at them, sir. They're different from us. Wings are shorter and stubbier. Their hips are wider and... Perhaps they were drawn by a bad artist, Kang said. He sighed. You're seeing what you want to see, my friend. Maybe so, sir. Slith was stubborn. But I say it's worth a chance. What do you say? Kang looked ahead into the future. The future that was suddenly no longer bleak and empty. A future that was no longer a death watch. A future that held meaning. Yes, he said, drawing a deep shivering breath. Yes, I'd say it was worth the chance. Selquist found a place in a wooded area of the valley in which to hole up, rest through the heat of the day. It would be miserable walking, and he didn't particularly want to return to Celebundan during daylight hours anyway. Making himself comfortable in a cool patch of dirt underneath a large pine tree, Selquist laid down, head on his arms, and gazed, smiling, into the tree branches. He hadn't recovered the map, but then he hadn't really expected to. Having the map wasn't all that important now, anyway. Dwarves and draconians and the map, they were all going to the same place. One goal accomplished. The second goal, to rid himself of that accursed holy symbol of Tachesis, that was accomplished, too. Selquist wasn't superstitious, nor was he particularly religious. But when things go wrong and keep going wrong, and you have in your possession a necklace that might have been worn by her dark majesty, and she might have a fondness for it, and the way you came by that necklace was not exactly honest, well, it couldn't hurt to return it. And finally, the third goal, to get rid of Morthane once and for all. That goal was not yet accomplished, but at least Selquist was off to a good start. Chapter 27 Kang and Slith spent the remainder of the day making plans. They kept the map and the news about the eggs secret, not because they didn't trust their men, but because they knew that once they told them of this unexpected hope, they would have difficulty restraining them from dashing off heedlessly and probably getting themselves killed in the process. Their commander needed to be able to present them with a plan. And once Kang emerged from his euphoric daydreams, 
he realized that this was not going to be easy. In fact, he couldn't imagine anything more difficult. Thorbarden, he muttered. How the devil are we going to get inside Thorbarden? You Sivax could manage, I suppose. Knock off a dwarf or two and take their shapes, although that didn't really work out all that well in Celebundan. We'll need a sizable force, sir, Slith said. More than just four Sivax. For one thing, we'll have to carry those eggs out ourselves. Dragon eggs are big, and they're heavy. Not to mention we might have to fight. I don't trust that scroungy little dwarf, not for a moment. I have the feeling he's setting us up. He was all too eager to hand out this information. It could be a trap, Kang said. It probably is, sir, Slith agreed. He was silent a moment, then said, We can abandon this, sir, if that's what you want. I'll never say a word to anyone. Yes, Kang said to himself, that's what I should do. This is wild, impossible, dangerous, and probably all for nothing. We'll stay here, rebuild our village. Every few weeks we'll raid the dwarves. Every few weeks they'll raid us. Eventually, who knows how long, we'll start to die off. One or two at first, then more and more. We'll dig the graves behind the city. Dig them deep so the animals don't drag off the bodies. The last one that's left won't have a grave. There won't be anyone around to bury him. Maybe that'll be me. Maybe I'll be the only draconian left alive. I've watched all the others die, all my friends, all my comrades, all those I've led. I'll bury them all, and there'll be only me left. Our legacy. A row of graves. Kang looked at Slith. All right, how the devil do we get into Thorbarden? Slith grinned. I think I know a way, sir. The small force of twenty-five draconians, made up of Sivax and Bozax, crept silently through the forest north of Celebundan. The troops had traveled far to the north of the village, then swung back down to return to the forest, hoping by this tactic to keep any dwarven scouts in the valley from running across them. Kang glanced behind him. He could barely make out the draconians lurking in the woods, and he knew where to look for them. They were wearing leather armor, and with their coloration blended in with the browns and faded greens of the sun-blistered forest. Each chose his spot, hunkered down, and did not move. They could have been boulders scattered beneath the trees. Satisfied, Kang turned his attention back to the house they were keeping under close scrutiny. They're still in there, sir, said Gloth, leader of the hand-picked squad. I can see them moving around. I hope they haven't stolen a march on us, Kang said. I don't think so, sir, said Slith, who had the sharpest eyes of anyone in the troop. There's four of them inside, the same who were there with the book. I recognize that scrawny dwarf with the moldy beard, and there's a chubby dwarf with him, plus the two we snatched from the Dark Knights. And you think they'll all go? Positive, sir. Those are the same four that I followed the last time. They're in this together. The fiery sun was setting, sending shadows creeping through the forest. This was a dangerous time, because the lengthening shadows often fooled the eye, 
making a soldier think he sees movement. All it would take to cause this mission to end in disaster was a single draconian leaping up with a yell, ready to attack something that wasn't there. The dwarves would be on the pursuit so fast, they'd probably leave their beards behind. The last rays of light gilded the crest of Mount Salamund. It was dark now in the valley, and Kang was thinking that the dwarves would be on their way soon, when Slith dug an elbow in Kang's ribs. Damn! Look at that, sir! Kang was looking. With his night vision it was easier to see in the full darkness than it had been in the half-light of dusk. Twenty dwarves, clad in uniform under the direction of a commander, were marching down the street. They've found us, said Gloth, reaching for his sword. No, wait, Kang ordered. Those dwarves aren't going to battle. Or at least if they are, it's not with us. The other two now saw what their commander had first noticed. In addition to their weapons, the dwarves carried hefty packs on their backs and water skins. Several had brought along stout walking staffs. Slith glanced at Kang. What gives? Kang shook his head. Don't know. My guess is that's their war chief, the bastard who ordered our village burned. I've seen him before giving orders. The leader, a large grizzled dwarf whom Kang recognized from earlier raids, entered the house. The small troop of dwarves huddled together in the yard, keeping watch, though not for draconians. They weren't facing that direction. These dwarves were looking back toward their own village. A few minutes later the occupants of the house emerged, with the war chief right behind. The four also carried packs, water skins, and weapons. Slith and Kang both spotted the scrawny dwarf talking to the war chief. You were mentioning a trap, sir, Slith whispered. Think this is it. Kang mused. This was completely unexpected. No, I doubt it, he said at last. A trap for us would have been more like two hundred dwarves, not twenty. No, I think they're facing a logistical problem. The same one we faced. How do four dwarves carry back all that loot? Not to mention the fact that these Nidar will be about as welcome in Thorbardin as we will, if they catch us. The dwarves moved out. Quite the expedition, isn't it, sir? Slith said. Yes, Kang agreed. Somehow I don't imagine this is what our skinny little friend had in mind. The dwarves swung past them, the war chief in the lead, looking very smug and triumphant. The scrawny dwarf and his three friends marched along glumly behind. Kang glanced over his shoulder. This is it. Gloth, prepare to move out. Gloth crawled back into the underbrush. The draconians were also well equipped, carrying heavy packs containing food and, in addition, tools and equipment, which could be used for tunneling, climbing, building. Fifty-foot rope cords looped around their bodies like sashes. All wore swords. Kang had a full complement of magical spells. It might have been his imagination, but since he'd recovered his holy symbol, her dark majesty had seemed more gracious to him. More gracious, yet he thought he detected an undercurrent of unease. Perhaps her dark knights were running into trouble. Gloth crawled back. We're ready whenever you give the word, sir. They didn't have to wait long. The dwarves exited the village, heading north. No one came out to cheer or wave or see the dwarves leave. 
the high thane was not making a speech urging his men on to glory. These twenty were sneaking out under cover of darkness. Kang could guess why. The dwarven village was still expecting to be attacked by the draconians, and here were twenty able-bodied men who should be preparing to defend hearth and home, leaving it. The dwarves marched straight for the Celebund Pass. The night was extremely dark. It would be some time yet before Lunatari rose, and then she'd be only a thin sliver of red like a scar. The black moon was full, though. Kang gave the dwarves a ten-minute head start. Move out! Kang ordered Gloff to pass the order, which would be done by each draconian whispering the command to the next in line. I want absolute quiet, Kang reiterated. Anyone so much as coughs, no dwarf spirits for the next two months. This was a terrible threat, and completely unnecessary, as Kang knew. His troops were well-disciplined, well-trained, and these were the best of the best. The draconians moved out of the north end of the wood, marching along after the dwarves. Kang led the troop up the rocky entrance to the well-worn path that wound over the edge and down the side of Mount Celebund. Every time they topped a rise, he could see the line of dwarves, their body glowing faintly red in his sight, trailing down the mountain ahead of him. They'd marched about six hours, and had just completed the crossing of the pass when the dwarves called a halt. They settled themselves in a glade, pulled out water skins, and rested from their labors. Kang stopped the troop. Slith moved forward. What is it, sir? he asked. Down below, the ground opens up. We have to cross a meadow. We should increase the distance between our two parties. At this rate, we should still reach Mount Bletheron by sunrise. Are they following the same path they took the first time? Exactly, sir. Slith's tongue flicked over his teeth. I was right. They're leading us straight to their secret entrance. Kang's troop waited for the dwarves to move on. Half an hour later, the dwarves packed up and continued their march. The draconians reached the approaches to Mount Bletheron as the sky began to lighten. We'd better stop and take cover here, Kang said. Once it's daylight, any dwarf who so much as turns his head to look behind him will see us. The draconians crouched behind boulders or lay down beneath bushes. Most fell asleep. Kang and Slith took turns keeping watch. The morning passed without incident. When the sun had reached its zenith, was burning down on them as if it meant to roast each one alive, Kang decided that the dwarves had an adequate head start. He woke everyone up. After a cold meal, they were on their way again. They crossed the pass over Mount Bletheron just as the sun began to set. Kang was beginning to worry. He had set his best trackers on the trail, and they reported no sign of the dwarves. Of course, it was difficult to track anything among the rocks and boulders. One thousand dwarves could have marched through here without leaving a trace. But Kang fretted and fumed. What if Slith was wrong? What if the dwarves had struck off on another path? Kang motioned for Slith and Gloth to move up to join him at the front of the line. I let them get too far ahead. We have to make up some time. The dwarves are a good half-day's march ahead of us. They didn't stop last night, so my guess is that they'll stop and rest tonight. Do you know where? Slith nodded. 
They'll probably camp in front of the Helifundus Ridge, on the other side of Mount Pranechio, just like they did when I followed them last time. They're going to spot us once we start to cross the ridge. We can't hide up there, said Gloth, and we can't let them get too far ahead or they'll sneak into Thorbarden and we'll never find their entrance. Kang nodded. Don't worry about that. I have a spell in mind that will solve that problem. Our first objective is to make certain we're on the right trail. The troop marched on. By midnight they had crossed Mount Pranechiel and were climbing the approach to Helifundus Ridge. Kang was picking his way through a clump of boulders, thinking that this would be a good place to camp for the night, when he nearly stepped on a slumbering dwarf. Kang stopped so suddenly he very nearly tumbled snout first down the mountain. His first thought was, at least we found them. His second, the dwarves have found us. Chapter 28 Moving slowly and carefully, testing his footing with every step, Kang crept backward. If he dislodged so much as a pebble, it would go bounding down the mountainside and give them away. When he was out of sight of the sleeping dwarf and within sight of his men, Kang made frantic hand signals, ordering an immediate halt. The draconians froze where they stood, tense and wary. While Kang listened for sounds of alarm from the dwarven encampment, he searched desperately for cover for his troop. On the other side of the path a stand of half-dead bushes clung to the rock. He glided toward the bushes, using his wings to take the weight off his feet and reduce both the noise and the possibility that he might slip and fall. The troop was right behind him, marching in single file. Circling the bushes, the draconians crouched and lay down on the other side. Slith was last in line. Kang had not spoken a word, but every soldier had guessed what had happened. I don't think anyone heard us, Slith whispered. Kang nodded in response. He had feared the dwarves had sent an ambush for them, but that didn't appear to be the case. He let himself breathe again. Slith drew his sword, then lay down to hide. Kang did the same. The draconians waited. This time no one fell asleep. There hadn't been a cloud in the sky for months, but Kang thought that the Dark Queen might take an interest in their cause and send a storm along the next day. It would be difficult for the dwarves to discover they were being followed in a driving rainstorm, and the draconians could sneak close enough to see where the dwarves entered the mountain. But if her dark majesty was taking an interest, she wasn't bothering to help. Morning broke clear and sunny, Kang swore silently to himself. A blind dwarf could see them in weather like this. They heard sounds from the dwarven camp. Kang risked raising up, spotted two dwarves performing their morning ablutions behind a rock, then came sounds of pot-banging and cheerful swearing. The dwarves were cooking breakfast. After that they packed up and left. Kang kept his men hidden, waited two hours before he permitted them to move. He ordered the troop to eat, sent out a patrol to scout. The patrol returned with good news. We could see them from a distance, strung out along the ridge, they should be to the other end before nightfall, sir. Slith, Gloth, over here. Kang spelled out his plan. We'll cross the ridge tonight using cover of darkness. I don't think we have to worry about being seen. We're close to Thorbarden. 
Their secret entrance must be near, and the dwarves will probably be underground before we even reach the ridge. Once we're there, we'll wait until daylight to search for the hidden entrance. I'll ask our queen for my spells. All went as planned. The troop reached the ridge, never seeing a dwarf, confident that the dwarves had not seen them. Kang made certain his men were settled, saw the watch posted. Rummaging in his pack, he drew out his newly restored holy symbol, and, holding the medallion fast in his hand, he began to climb up a dry creek bed, the water having long ago vanished in the hot, brittle summer. He'd caught a glimpse of what he thought might be a cave up there, the perfect place for him to use to commune with her dark majesty. The creek bed wound around a large flat ledge that jutted out over the place where his men were resting. The going was a bit difficult here. Kang was forced to use hands, feet, tail, and wings to help him over the last little stretch. He made it, and had just straightened, was wiping his hands clean, when he was suddenly aware that he wasn't alone. Someone was up here. Someone was hiding in that cave. Human to judge by the smell, a smell that was familiar. Kang was an easy target standing on the ledge in full sunlight. Well, there was no help for it. Cursing his own carelessness, he peered into the darkness of the cave. You can come out, Huzud, he said quietly. I know you're in there. At first he heard no sound of movement, and he tensed, waiting for the arrow to come flying out of the darkness, the arrow that would end his life. He could always shout for help. Slith and his Sivax could fly up the mountain, whereas Kang had been forced to climb. They wouldn't arrive in time to save their commander, but they could at least exact vengeance on his slayers. But no, Kang reasoned, this didn't make sense. If there was a squad of archers on their trail, they would have killed him long before this, killed him and all the rest. And now that he was closer, he only smelled one human. Huzud was alone. Perhaps she expected the Draconians to be intimidated by her authority, her rank, and standing as a knight of Takesis, maybe even the fact that she was human. Perhaps she figured they'd be so impressed that they would just meekly surrender. Kang raised his hands, opened them. I'm not armed. My men are asleep down below. It's just you and me, Huzud. If you've come here to settle the score, let's settle it between the two of us. The knight emerged from the cave. She was clad in leather armor, not plate mail, with leather breeches. Her arms were bare. She wore no shirt due to the heat. She was dressed for stealth, for tracking, not armored for battle. Her red hair hung in two limp braids down her back. She wore her sword, but she kept it sheathed. Her hand was on the hilt, however. Standing in the shadows of the cave, she regarded Kang with cool speculation. Then she motioned. Come inside out of the sun. I'm alone, she added. I'm not, said Kang dryly. I have twenty men down below. Twenty men who would like nothing better than to see those red braids of yours hanging from their belts. We're not going back, Sir Knight. There's nothing you can do or say that will make us change our minds. We're warriors, not crap-hole diggers, and we're sure as hell not going to go back and be executed as deserters. Huzud tilted her head, squinted to see him. 
The sun was fierce, beat off the rocks. But that's what you are, Draconian. Deserters. No, ma'am, Kang was emphatic. We agreed to join up on terms that we would work as engineers. Your commander accepted our terms. Then he went back on them. In a manner of speaking, you might say that the Lord Knight deserted us. The corners of Huzud's mouth twitched, and then to Kang's amazement she began to laugh. She laughed until tears came to her eyes. She wiped her hand over her eyes, removed her hand from her sword hilt. I would dearly love to see my lord's face when you presented that argument, Kang. Sighing, she shook her head. Who knows? Perhaps my lord is no longer still alive. I am not here to exact punishment on you and your men, Commander. True, I was sent to find you, and I have been following you for days. If I had wanted to kill you before now, I could have done so. You admit that? Kang gave a brief nod, kept his eyes on her. She seemed to find what she next had to say somewhat difficult. She ran her hand through her sweat-damp hair, stared out over the horizon. I am ordered to tell you that your role in the army of Tachesis has been re-evaluated, Commander. Kang grunted. Oh, so now you have a job for us to do. A dirty one, I'll bet. Will we need shovels? She flushed in anger, but it was quick to pass. Her gaze came back to Kang. Strange and terrible events are happening in this world. Events of which you know nothing, or so I'll wager. Come inside, please, Commander. We have to talk. Kang shrugged and entered the cave. It was shallow, more a depression in the rock than a true cavern. A quick glance revealed that she was telling the truth. Huzud was alone. Kang settled himself on the ground. Huzud sat down on a small boulder near him. Clasping her hands, she rested her elbows on her knees. Kang noted that the knuckles of her hands were white. Out of the glaring sun he saw new lines of strain and tension on her face. She had called him in here to talk, yet now she remained silent, pondering. You said something about your lord being dead. The elves proved tougher than you'd thought, apparently, Kang said. Elves? Huzud snorted. Tough. Qualinesti fell to Lord Ariakan's troops before our division even arrived. For the first time in the history of Kryn, Kang, the forces of her dark majesty control Ancelon. Oh, certainly there are pockets of resistance. Thorbarden, for one. But the dwarves are bottled up inside and are no threat to us, so we're letting them be. The High Clarist's Tower is ours, as is Palanthus and all the rest of Salamnia. The cursed dragons of Paladine have been forced to flee. Southern and northern Urgoth are ours. We control the high seas. Pax Tharkas has fallen. Solace is ours. Even Kendermore, she grimaced. Pity the poor knights who have duty there. Victory is ours, Kang. Victory for Her Majesty. Kang drew in a deep breath. He had known the knights were good, but he hadn't expected anything like this. Victory at last. The knights were the conquerors of Ancelon. Tachesis would rule. Then why Huzud's white-knuckled grip? Why had she been sent by her commander to find the Draconians? Why had she doubted if her commander was alive? The war was won and good as over. Kang had an alarming thought. Your lord doesn't intend to post us in Kendermore, does he? 
No, Hazud smiled, a fleeting smile. She was again quiet a moment, then said abruptly, My lord told you of the vision? Kang nodded, wondering why the sudden shift in subject. The vision gives each knight a clear understanding of the goals of the knighthood, Hazud explained. Her gaze shifted to the bright sunlight beyond the cavern. The vision reveals the knight's own part in her dark majesty's plan. The vision comes first at our investiture, and then many times after that, changing and flowing with the river of time. Her gaze shifted back to Kang. A line furrowed her brow. The knuckles of her clasped hands grew even whiter, as if the skin had been peeled back, revealing bare bone. My lord has, these past two weeks, experienced a new and frightful vision, Kang, and he is not the only one. The same vision came to many of us in the knighthood. Ah, now we're getting somewhere, Kang thought. And what is this vision, Sir Knight? The High Clarist's Tower is under attack. Salamnic knights, Kang said with an oath. No, not the knights. In fact, she paused, sounding awed. The Salamnics fight at our side. We fight against horrible creatures, demons that are not of this world. Or perhaps they are of this world, but have been held prisoner in the fathomless darkness below the abyss, prisoner until now. Now they swarm over the walls of the High Clarist's Tower. Each person they touch becomes as nothing. Not one memory of their existence is left behind. It is said that even the dead fear these demons. Lord Ariakan falls, mortally wounded. The gods are fighting in the heavens. The gods are fighting and they are losing. Huzud's voice was hushed as she spoke. Her face was pale, her eyes rapt and staring. She was seeing the vision again in her mind. A band of heroes rides forth to do battle with the father of the demons, the father of all, the father of the gods, Chaos. He has sent these fiends to destroy us, to obliterate our sun from the heavens, to return us to the void of which we were made. No memory of us, of any of us, will remain. A shiver made Kang's scales click. The Draconians might well perish as a race if their quest for the eggs failed, but at least there would be those who would remember them. Their deeds during the War of the Lance were even now being sung by bards all over Ancelon. The songs weren't particularly complimentary, and mostly told of how some hero or another had bested the Dark Queen's evil minions, but at least someone would be here to remember. At least someone would be here to sing. Kang tried to imagine nothing. All the pain, the suffering, the love, the hatred, the laughter, the gallantry, the heroes, the ordinary, all for nothing, reduced to nothing. What happens? Kang asked, his mouth dry. The heroes are defeated, Huzud said softly. The world falls into the hands of chaos, and he crushes it and wipes the dust from his fingers. Kang blinked. So that's the end for us? What do we do, sit here and wait to die? We do not, said Huzud sharply. She shook off the vision, snapped back to duty. The vision changes as time changes. What I have seen in the future may never come to pass. It may only partially come to pass, 
or it may never come to pass at all. We are instrumental in shaping the vision. In a way, we are most honored, for we are given the opportunity to fight alongside the gods. You are going to Thorbarden, aren't you, Commander? She slid that one in so swiftly that Kang was caught off guard. He recovered, shrugged, and said, We are? That's news to me. Smiling, Huzud reached out and took hold of Kang's clawed hand. He stared, astonished at the firm, thin, and calloused fingers that gripped his scaly hide. It was the first time human flesh had ever voluntarily touched his. Her hand was warm and her grasp strong. You were in my vision, Kang. That is why the commander sent me to find you. I have a message to give you. A message from her dark majesty. She is well pleased with you, Commander Kang. You have survived in a hostile world for many years, and in all that time you have remained loyal to her. You have shown intelligence and wisdom. Others would have killed the dwarves in your valley, but you, by permitting your enemies to live, have in turn lived off them. Your wisdom has been rewarded. The dwarves have stumbled across a valuable treasure, very valuable indeed, and I do not mean steel or jewels. Kang stared at Huzud. His hand trembled. Huzud could not have known about the dwarves. Kang had never told her anything about them. Certainly she could not have known about the treasure map. This message was indeed from the queen. Kang bowed his head, humbled and grateful. Huzud's grip on his hand tightened. Inside a chest, decorated with my symbols, are ten dragon eggs, two gold, two silver, two bronze, two brass, two copper. They contain female draconians. The females are alive, or rather they will be when the final spell is cast. Kang's heart sank, his hopes dashed. And how can that spell be cast? Kang asked bitterly. We have no dark clerics among us, no black-robed wizards. You do not need them, said Huzud calmly. Their work has been done. You need only a wand, a very special wand. How will I know it? The wand is made of obsidian, and is as long as your forearm. The bodies of five dragons twine around it, each dragon made of precious gems. The head of the dragons join at the top, their tails twine together at the bottom. The knowledge of how to use this wand will come to you when needed. Speak my name, that is all that is required. The wand will do the rest. Thank you, Sir Knight. Tell Her Majesty, Kang was choked with emotion, that I do not know how to thank her. She has a way, said Huzud, and her voice was grim. Deep inside Thorbardin live those who will, if they are not stopped, be Kryn's doom. We will destroy them, Kang vowed, clenching his fist. If you want us to wipe out every dwarf in Thorbardin, every dwarf on Ancelon, we will do it. Not dwarves, Kang, said Huzud. Haven't you been listening? The enemy you may be called upon to face is far more terrible than any living enemy you could possibly face on Kryn. These are the creatures of chaos. What are they? Kang asked. Huzud stared intently into the darkness, 
stared back into the vision. At length, she shook her head. No, I cannot tell. All I see is fire, the heroes withering and dying in the flames. I see the world itself withering and dying. I am sorry, Kang. I know nothing more. Here my vision ends, and so does my message. Then how do we know what we are supposed to fight? Kang asked, frustrated. How will we know when we meet these fiends, the Dark Queen's enemies? When you see her sign, this sign. Huzud released Kang's hand. With her finger, she traced around the image of the five-headed dragon on his breastplate. You will know that what you do, you do for her dark majesty, and at her behest, and with her blessing. Huzud rose to her feet. That is my message, Kang. I'm sorry if it is not clearer. I hope you find the eggs. I hope your race survives. Kang stood up. I hope we all survive. Thank you, Sir Knight. Thank you for coming. You've brought me great hope. The two walked to the cavern entrance and paused, loath to go out into the baking sun. We are near Thorbarden. The dwarves patrol this area sometime. Do you need an escort? Kang asked. I could detail two of my men. No, thank you, Kang. Huzud reached beneath her leather armor, drew out an amulet of a red dragon on a silver chain. My mount is within coal. Goodbye, then, Sir Knight, Kang said, adding, Where do you go now? To the High Clarist's Tower, Huzud replied. Who knows? Perhaps I will be among that band of heroes to make that last fateful ride. Farewell, Commander. Farewell, Sir Knight, Kang said. Glory and the Dark Queen ride with you. Huzud left the cavern, followed a trail that led her higher up the mountain. Kang watched her until she passed out of his line of sight. Even then he remained at the cavern entrance for long moments, pondering what had been said, going over her words in his mind. Kang drew out the holy symbol, held it in his palm. Then he presented the symbol to the fiery sun. It seemed to him that the symbol, tinged with a red light, was dipped in blood. Humbly he sank to his knees and thanked her dark majesty for her favor. The dwarf had spoken truly. The eggs were draconian eggs, female draconians. At last he and his men had a future to contemplate. Even in his joy, Kang did not miss the cruel irony. Now that they finally had something to live for, he had just pledged their lives to fight these creatures of chaos, whatever those might be. Yet, if only a few of his draconians survived the battle, and, Kang gloried in the thought, the young female draconians could be rescued from their eggshell prisons, their future would be assured. Chapter 29 When Kang awoke, he realized that night was falling. He was tired, but the warmth of his queen's approval eased the weariness. In addition, she had given him the spells he had requested. It was time to be moving. Returning to camp, he found Slith just waking up. Did you get any rest, sir? Slith asked. Some, Kang said. He considered telling Slith that he'd seen Huzud, that she'd brought a message to him from the queen. 
Kang rejected the idea. Slith was an excellent soldier, and the best friend Kang had in the world, but Slith was cynical when it came to humans. He would immediately start to poke holes in Huzud's story, and before long he'd have Kang doubting Huzud, doubting the queen, doubting himself. No, better to keep both hope and fear locked inside. The Draconians were on march once the sun had fully set. This Helifundus Pass was a difficult one to traverse. The Draconians tied themselves together with ropes for safety. Kang ordered all of them to bind their mouths with lengths of cloth. If anyone did fall, Kang didn't want them to give away their position by screaming. The troops spent the night crossing the pass. They reached the other side of the ridge an hour before sunup. Kang ordered a halt. Rest while we can. Once it's light, we'll start the search. The sun rose, blistering the Corollis Mountains, flooding the valleys with heat. Before them, hidden in the mountain, was the great dwarven city of Thorbardin, the gates shut against the threat of the dark nights, the mountain sealed. Thousands upon thousands of dwarves were inside there, waiting and alert for attack. And Kang and twenty draconians were going to try to sneak inside. Kang let his imagination play with the notion of what would happen if he and his small band were discovered. There wouldn't be any graves to worry about. That much was sure. With daylight, Gloth ordered the troop to spread out, try to find the dwarves' trail. They hadn't been searching long before Slith yelled, Here, sir! Kang hastened over to look. The grass had been beaten down and a twig on the end of a bush had been broken. You and I'll follow this. The rest of you stay here. Oh, and Slith, leave any rope you're carrying behind. Slith looked a bit startled at this strange request, but did as his commander ordered. He and Kang took over, following the trail, which was extremely clear. They even found bits of bread and other food tossed aside. The dwarves weren't being at all careful to conceal their tracks. Evidently, they had no idea they were being followed. Either that, or they're luring us on with breadcrumbs, like the witch in the kender tale, said Slith. She ended up cooking the children, I hear. We'll see who cooks whom, if that's the case, Kang growled. They made good progress for nearly a mile, and then unaccountably the trail vanished. The Draconian stood in front of a rock wall that was, to all appearances, solid. What now, sir? Slith asked. I have a spell that allows me to find certain objects. I figure that if the dwarves are entering the mountain using a secret entrance, that entrance must be an old mine shaft or maybe an air hole. What else could it be? Slith gave the matter thought. Right, sir. And if that's the case, they'll have to use rope to lower themselves down. I'll cast a magical spell that searches for rope. That's ingenious, sir. Slith was impressed. And so simple. That's why you made me leave my rope behind. I already know where you are, Kang said, grinning. What happens if they haven't used rope, sir? Kang grunted. Then we have a problem. Let's just hope that's not the case. He held a forked stick in his right hand. Speaking the words of the spell, 
he drew a symbol in the air with his left hand, held out the stick. He and Slith gazed at it expectantly. The stick didn't move. Damn! The entrance must be here somewhere. The blasted dwarves didn't fly off. Search north for any signs, Kang said, frustrated. I'll follow this wall south. Five hundred paces, then meet me back here. Well, Kang asked when the two met up again. I haven't found anything, sir. Should I call down the rest of the troop? No, not with all the rope they're carrying, Kang thought the matter through. Let's look at this logically. A mine shaft or an air hole would have to come to the surface somewhere higher than ground level. Otherwise, the mine below would flood every time it rained. You're right, sir. I never thought of that. Slith looked around, suddenly pointing west. What about up there? He gestured toward a small rock butte, several hundred yards away. He and Kang hastened over, searching on the way for tracks. Aha! Slith pointed to a small fir seedling that had been trampled into the ground. Kang climbed the first rock, leading up to the butte. He tried his spell again, and this time the stick moved in his hand, moved so violently that he nearly dropped it. The stick pointed upward. Excited, Kang climbed onto the next rock, only to find the way blocked by a hedge of bramble bushes. The forked stick pointed directly at the brambles. Look at this, sir, Slith cried. Reaching out, he plucked a few strands of brown hair from the brambles. That came from a dwarf beard or my wings don't flap. And see, sir, there's others broken and more hair, and here's a bit of cloth. They came this way, that's for certain. Kang forced his way through the thorns, which had little effect on his scaled hide. Below the bramble bush they found a large stone cover, looking like a plug in the side of the mountain. Let's get rid of this mess, Slith said, drawing his sword and attacking the brambles. Kang replaced his stick on his belt. The two chopped the thorns away from the stone cover. Once clear, they each lifted one side of the stone. It came off easily. Below them, a hole opened up, leading straight down and vanishing into darkness. Plainly visible in the sunlight were ropes attached to grapples on the side of the wall. We're in, Kang said. Chapter 30 The dwarves descended the ropes leading down into the air shaft. The descent was accomplished with an immense amount of clumping, banging, swearing, and talking in what they considered loud whispers, which would have been shouts to any other race. Leading the way down, Selquist cringed. Thorbarden was a considerable distance away, but with the noise this troop was making, he wouldn't have been surprised to find every Hylar dwarf in the place down at the bottom awaiting their arrival. The worst of it was, Morthane and his soldier dwarves thought they were being both sneaky and stealthy. Try to be a little more quiet, he ventured to call softly when he had reached the bottom. What did he say? boomed Morthane. Dunno, can't hear came back several loud replies, along with a dropped pickaxe that crashed to the ground with an unholy clang and nearly took off Selquist's foot. Chamosh, take the lot of you, Selquist muttered into his beard. Now what's the matter? he asked Mortar, who was next down. 
The dwarf landed, shook his head. It's not right, he said. It's just not right. What isn't right? Selquist thought something had gone wrong up top. I shouldn't be here, Mortar said in a low voice. I promised three orcs I wouldn't steal anymore, and— Oh, for the love of— Selquist sighed. We've been through this, Mortar. What we're doing is not stealing. The stealing's been done for us. We're— He searched for inspiration. Being thrifty. Making use of valuable resources, which would otherwise go to waste. Mortar hesitated, considering this new idea. We're not receivers of stolen merchandise? No, no, Selquist said soothingly. The statute of limitations is up on this crime. The owners have collected the insurance money. They don't want any of the stuff back. It's free for the taking. Oh, Mortar thought this over, liked it, and waited to impart this information to his brother, who was now descending. Selquist shook his head. As if he didn't have enough trouble, now he had to deal with a dwarf who had developed a conscience. Sometimes it didn't pay to get out of bed. Grabbing hold of Augur, who had just landed, Selquist took him in tow and hastened over to the other rope, down which the soldier dwarves were rattling. Morthane had finally reached ground level. Standing at the bottom, he was shouting encouragement to those above. Selquist used admirable restraint and did not throttle the war chief. More brain, he said, poking the chief in the back. Huh? Morthane jumped and turned. He glared when he saw who it was. The name's Morthane. And what do you want? Ogre and I are going to do a little scouting. You and the rest wait for us down this tunnel. Morthane frowned, suspicious. Where are you going? Not thinking of ditching us and running off with the treasure, are you? Selquist asked for patience, lest he smash the war chief's teeth down his throat. No, I'm not. I'm leaving Martyr and Pestle here as proof I return. They have the map. As to where I'm going, I'm going to take a look inside Thorbardin. You're making enough racket to wake the Eighth Kingdom. We should see if the Hylar are up in arms yet. It was obvious Morthane didn't like this, but he had to admit that from a military standpoint, scouting the enemy made good sense. And he remained in possession of Mortar, who was in possession of the map. All right, Morthane growled. But don't take long. If you're not back in an hour, we're going on without you. Selquist gave a curt nod. He and Augur left, accompanied by the clatter of a dropped shovel. Where are we going? Augur asked after a moment. This is a different direction than when we went the last time. Once out of sight of the expeditionary party, Selquist climbed what appeared to be a sheer wall, but which, Augur discovered by experiment, turned out to have several hand and footholds carved into the rock. At the top, Selquist entered another shaft. This one was small. The dwarves were forced to crawl through it on their hands and knees, and even then they bumped their heads on the ceiling. Like I told Murthane, said Selquist, we're going to take a look and see what's going on in Thorbarden. Really? Augur was amazed. You meant it? Of course, said Selquist in lofty tones. I don't lie all the time. Why didn't we take this way before? Augur asked. Despite bumping their heads and scraping their hands on the rock, this route seemed easier than the last. You'll see, Selquist predicted. And at the end, Augur saw. The tunnel ended abruptly, opened out into nothing. Augur, P. 
peering fearfully over the edge, saw the city of Thorbardin far, far below. The dwarves moving around down there looked like ants in an anthill he'd once stepped on. He gulped and scooted backward, clinging to the sides of the tunnel with both hands. I don't like this, he said in a small voice. Let's go back. Just a minute. Selquist was hanging perilously over the edge, staring down. Just looking at him made Augur feel queasy. Something's going on. I've never seen this many people about. I can't see what they're doing, but it looks like... He fell silent. Yes, what? Can we go now? Augur whimpered, shivering. There it were, said Selquist, finally. Augur's eyes widened. With the dark nights? But I thought the Hylar closed the mountain. They did, said Selquist. They're at war with each other. He pulled himself back, didn't speak for a long time. He sat so quietly and looked so solemn that Augur was frightened. They're not coming after us, are they? No, they're not coming after us, Selquist sighed. They've got bigger problems. Dwarf fighting dwarf. It just doesn't seem right somehow. Humans fight each other all the time, Augur pointed out. That's humans, Selquist was scornful. We're supposed to be better than that. Who's fighting who? Augur asked. I can't tell for sure. My guess would be the Thaiwar have finally done what they threatened to do all these years. They're trying to take over the rulership of Thorbarden. The fighting seems to be spreading out from their city, the one we visited the last time we were here. Augur, remembering the barmaid and her side-whiskers, expressed a hope that no one would get hurt. "'It's war, Augur,' Selquist said. "'A lot of people will get hurt.' He shook his head, shrugged. "'Oh, well, at least that's one threat we don't have to worry about.' He turned and started crawling back down the tunnel. "'Good thing, too,' said Augur, coming along behind. "'What with those draconians following us?' Selquist bumped his head hard on the ceiling. Twisting around, he glared back at Augur. What did you say? I said it was a good thing we didn't have to worry about the Hylar. I don't mean that. The part about the Draconians. They're following us. Didn't you know? Well, of course I knew, Selquist snapped. It was my idea that they follow us, but no one else is supposed to know. Does anyone else know? He appeared anxious. Did you tell anyone? I've told you, said Augur, after a moment's intense thought. I don't count anyone else. Martyr, Pestle. No, Augur said. Selquist was relieved, a feeling that evaporated quickly when Augur added, They were the ones who told me. Selquist groaned. Does everyone in the whole bloody party know? I don't think so. Mortar said I wasn't to mention it to Morthane or the rest of his bunch. Mortar said he figured that it was all part of your plan, and that it was pretty damn clever of you. Mortar said that. Selquist was pleased. Pretty damn clever. Augur nodded. Well, he's right, Selquist stated. It was pretty damn clever of me. He started crawling again, moving along rapidly. I don't understand, Selquist, Augur said, scuttling along behind. Do you want the draconians to be following us? Of course. Otherwise, how would they know how to find the secret entrance? Augur assimilated this. It appeared to him to have a flaw. Do we want them to find the secret entrance? Of course. 
Otherwise, how are they going to get inside and lead us to the treasure? Augur assimilated this as well. Why will they lead us to the treasure? Because they have the map, Selquist was triumphant. We have a map. Not a very good one. This way is a lot more certain. Augur crawled along in the darkness, did some more thinking. But, Selquist, what if the Draconians decide to take the treasure for themselves? They won't. They're only interested in one thing. The Draconian eggs. Augur gasped. The eggs? How do they know about the eggs? I told them, Selquist was smug. That's why they're following us, and that's why we're going to be following them. Pretty damn clever, huh? Augur was overwhelmed at the sheer masterful braininess of this scheme. Just one thing, though. Won't the Draconians be really mad when they find Morthane squishing the eggs? That, said Selquist lightly, is Morbrain's problem. The two dwarves continued crawling. On their arrival, Selquist and Augur found the rest of the dwarves had safely reached the bottom of the air shaft. Morthane was standing at the bottom, trying to figure out how to recover the ropes. Just leave them, Selquist suggested. The Draconians can use them. I don't know, Morthane said solemnly. It seems. His eyes bulged. He began to sputter. What? What? Draconians? What draconians? Don't keep repeating yourself, Morbrain. It makes you sound even stupider than usual. The draconians who have been following us, of course. The draconians who have the only good map. I can get us and them to the starting point, but after that our maps are a bit muddled, and we're going to have to rely on them. Morthane was rendered speechless. Shut your mouth, Morbrain, Selquist continued. A rappel will fly into it. You should be thanking me. I'm going to make you a hero. Your name will live in legend and song for centuries to come. Now, he put his arm around the stunned war chief, drew him off to one side. Here's my plan. Chapter 31 The last draconian lowered himself down the rope. Kang waited at the bottom to make certain everyone arrived safely. We could have used our wings after all, he thought. Floated down, not bothered with these ropes. But he hadn't been able to judge how wide the tunnel was, and so he'd insisted that everyone climb. He didn't want anyone breaking a wing in case the shaft suddenly narrowed. One of the Sivax who'd been first down had been sent out to scout. He came back to report. No sign of anyone up ahead, sir, he said, although the place reeks of dwarf. They were here, and not long ago. Nice of them to leave the ropes. Kang grunted. Yes, wasn't it? Little bastards think they're so clever. Keep your eyes open for ambush. He took out the map. Slith, bring that light over here. The regimental second-in-command brought an oil light that was known among thieves as a dark lantern. Made of iron, the lantern had iron panels that slid open to let out the light of the burning wick. When the panels were shut, the light could not be seen at all. Slith held the lantern over the map. The route to the treasure starts in a large chamber. It can't be too far. Look, south gate's marked down here and north gate's marked up here. This is where we are, right between the two and off to the west. 
and that's where the chamber is, just a bit north of us. But it's a rat's warren down here, sir, said Slith in disgust. Tunnels and shafts running off in every direction. How will we find the right one? Simple, said Kang, grinning and shoving the map back in a pouch. We follow the dwarves. Douse that light. Slith, you go on point. Draconians, like their dragon ancestors, were at home inside caverns and tunnels. Once their eyes grew accustomed to the darkness, they were able to move along rapidly. The smell of dwarf was particularly strong in one of the tunnels, a tunnel that had two iron rails embedded in the floor. Spreading out single file, the draconians entered the tunnel. The walking was easy. The tunnel was large and ran straight into the heart of the mountain. No other tunnels or shafts branched off from it. It neither curved nor bent. The smell of dwarf led them on, growing stronger and fresher. They walked for what Kang estimated was about an hour, and then he saw Slith, who had been out in front, motioning. Wait here, Kang ordered, and went on ahead. What is it? Slith opened the lantern's panel. A shaft of yellow light flared out, revealed the dismembered bodies of two dwarves lying huddled in the tunnel. Both wore metal armor and both held swords in their skeletal hands. Both had been brutally ripped apart, the flesh picked from their bones. I'm no coward, sir, Slith said, but I don't mind telling you I wouldn't want to meet the creature that did this. I'm no coward, and I agree with you, said Kang. He examined the remains. They've been dead about twenty years or so. Hopefully whatever did this has moved on. Still, keep your eyes open. Yes, sir. That's what I wanted to tell you, sir. The tunnel curves around a band up ahead, Slith said, his voice soft. It'd be a damn good place for an ambush, sir. Dwarves or whatever. Right. Go on ahead. We'll keep you covered. Slith shut the panel, squelched the light, and crept away. Kang brought the troop up, ordered everyone to a halt near the bodies of the dead dwarves. Slith moved cautiously toward the bend in the tunnel. Almost there he stopped. The rock face was moist. Water was seeping down from somewhere above. The rock glistened faintly. Slith stood unmoving until his body temperature had cooled to that of the temperature of the caverns. When that happened, he would be invisible to the dwarves, whose night vision was similar to that of the draconians, allowing them to see objects that radiated heat. He would also be invisible to anything else that might be lurking in the shadows. When he deemed that he had cooled down, Slith slid around the bend, keeping his body pressed against the wall. He saw nothing, heard nothing. He drew aside the panel, flashed the light around swiftly. The tunnel continued on ahead, iron rails gleaming in the lantern's light. He gave a whistle that was the all-clear signal and continued on. Kang and the troop marched silently behind.